And it's wonderful to see all the things starting to green up and grow again. Because I just always get, every time I see it, I get reminded of that picture in Isaiah that you know, just as the Lord sends the rain and it does what it should, so he says, So for I put forth my word and it will not return to me void without returning what it intended to do. And God's word is given to us uh, that we might grow, that we might flourish, and therefore it's no surprise that when we gather together, and not, but not only when we gather together, but throughout the week, uh, we spend time. Uh, looking at what God has made known to us in his word. So as we do that, let's recognise it's his word and come before him asking for his blessing on his word to speak through us and to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you have not left us to our own devices. Lord, you have given us everything that we need to know about you. You've given us everything that we need in order to to point us that we might be wise to salvation. And you've given us everything that we need that we might respond rightly to you and we might respond rightly to one another in this world in which we live in. Uh, Father, I pray that, uh, that you would help me to speak clearly, you'd help me to think clearly, that you would restrain my mouth from saying things that are not true. Uh, But, Lord, that we would hear the things which are true, that they would take deep root, that they would change us, that we would flourish, we would draw nearer to you and come to a greater love of you through our time together. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Who's ever had the fun of buying a product that was made overseas and they've had someone who's maybe not that particularly proficient in English translate the instructions into English, sometimes they're quite a, a fun kind of a read. Sometimes you read them and think, okay, I get the gist of what they're trying to say here. Um, it's not the way I would have worded it, but I get what they're trying to get at. But then there's some where you're just scratching your head and you're like that, particularly if you're the sort of person who's competitive and you like to figure it out, you go, I've got no idea what they're trying to say. I can see the words they've used, but I've got no idea what the point is. Well, here's some from the main Mianshu drifting scooter. This is not the entirety of them, but here's some of them. Warning, more than make you are in danger of falling weight. You have been warned, brothers and sisters. Do not let the child contact with animal cells. Charging mouth moist. Sorry, those who hate the word moist. Don't charge. Like, you can read that, and there's some of them who think, I think I understand what they're trying to get at. Like, that first one there, my guess, and I could be wrong, and I'm happy if this is the part of the sermon where I get something completely wrong, is that they're saying, if you're overweight, you're more likely to fall off. Maybe. That's, 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 my, that's how I read the warning, so maybe I'm not supposed to be on this drifting scooter. Don't let the child contact with animal cells. And I thought that it maybe means like living cells, the batteries or, or something. That's, that's where I'm guessing on that one. Third one, charge with the moist, charging moist mouth, don't charge. I think it means the socket where you plug in the charger, don't do it if it's wet because the wet and electricity aren't a good combination. But you and I, we all know people who love to do things by the book exactly, regardless of what the book says. Now imagine you've got a dad who's like that. He's like, I'm a stickler. If it's written this way, this is what I'm going to do. 
And he's got those instructions. And he says, rule one, do not use this scooter or heavy things will fall on you. Rule two, you can use your scooter, but you cannot touch your pet dog at the same time. You cannot touch animal cells and scooter incompatible. And thirdly, before you charge it, put your finger in your mouth. If it's moist, you can't charge it. Now, none of those rules, as wonderful as they just were, really reflect, I would imagine, the intent of the manufacturer. But they probably do reflect something of the contents of these instructions that were given, even though it's not what they intended them to mean. And today, as we look at the way in which Jesus interacts with people, we see some conflict between some of the religious rules that people were holding to at the time and what their intent of the original law of God was, and where Jesus fits in. In particular, he focuses in on fasting and and what it means to work on the Sabbath. But it's not just a case of looking at these two areas. In the process, we see a lot about who Jesus is. And so we're going to look at the question, should disciples of Jesus fast? What is the purpose of the Sabbath? And as we sum it up, we're going to look at the idea that Jesus is not an optional add-on to what you already have. Should disciples of Jesus fast? That's where we are in verses 18 to 22. Now, as we've started in the Gospel of Mark, Mark has introduced Jesus as the Son of God. He's presented him as God, as the Saviour, the Messiah, the Anointed King. And even in the first couple of chapters that we've looked at, we've seen that Jesus has acted in such a way that all of those claims would appear to be true. He's shown an, a unique authority over the humans, over, over health and sickness to heal thousands, to cast out evil spirits. As people heard him teach, I say, we have never heard anybody teach with this authority before. When they see him doing miracles, they say, we've never seen anyone do anything remotely like this before. And as a result, it became popular. Crowds flocked to him because of what he could do, the way in which he taught. It said he couldn't enter into any town because of the crowds. They've identified that there's something different about this Jesus than what we're used to seeing. And now they've got a question about one of the differences that they're observing. Now I presume the question is a perfectly innocent question. They're just out of curiosity. John's disciples, the Pharisees' disciples, they're fasting. Why aren't your disciples fasting? Now, there was only one day in the entirety of the Old Testament where it is actually commanded that the entire nation was to fast, which was Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. But at this time, in first century, there have been a whole lot of rules made up around rules to try and protect the original rules. At this point in time, Pharisees were known to fast at least every Monday and every Thursday. They were the appointed days, so, so it was so said to be. And whether this was a Monday or a Thursday, we don't know. But for whatever reason, the Pharisees and John's disciples, so it's not just the Pharisees who we tend to think negatively about, 
John's disciples also are fasting on this occasion. And they say, Jesus, why are your disciples not fasting? Now that raises two questions for us. One of them is we got the same question as, well, if even John's disciples are, are fasting, why aren't Jesus doing it? And then the second question is, if they're not doing it now, do they ever fast or will they ever fast? Now, the answer to that first question, Jesus says in verse 19, he says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Like Jesus speaks of himself as the bridegroom, which incidentally says something quite unexpected about Jesus to those who are hearing. Because in the Old Testament, the only one who is described as the bridegroom or the husband is Yahweh, is God himself. And Jesus is applying this to himself. The same language from Isaiah 54 verse 5 says, I, your maker, am your husband. And Jesus is taking this and applying it to himself. Just like previously when he said that he forgave sin, he's taking something which is the prerogative of God alone. But the question he asks is, do wedding guests fast when the bridegroom is there? Weddings are a big celebration. Even ours these days are big celebrations, but nothing compared to first century weddings. First century wedding was a festivity that was going on for seven days. Although if you... If you're a widow and it was your second wedding, you only got three days for those ones. But it was a big celebration. There was lots of food, there was lots of drinking. Now, who's ever been invited to a wedding and they've planned in advance, on this day, I know I'm going to a wedding, I'm going to fast that day. I'm going to turn up, I'm going to go to the reception, and when the food comes around, sorry, I'm fasting today. Anyone done that? Anyone seen someone do that? You don't. Nobody does that. Now, throughout the Old Testament scriptures, we see fasting in a number of different contexts. Some for repentance, forgiveness of sins. Day of Atonement, one example of that. A time when they were seeking God's guidance or help or assistance before they're going into a battle or into war. As a way of seeking God and longing for God, drawing near to God. And in Zechariah 8, it speaks about four fasts which they took place where there were times of remorse, when they were thinking about the time when the the temple was destroyed, when Jerusalem was destroyed. In Zechariah 8, speaking of those four fasts, and those fasts will be times that lead to joy and to peace. Now Jesus, as the bridegroom who is with them, says, now is not a time for celebrating. The bridegroom is here with you. Now's not the time for remorse. Imagine that if you went to a wedding and we said, ladies and gentlemen, we're gathered here today to lament the joining of this person and this person. Wouldn't the parents be happy? I wouldn't be asked to do another wedding in a hurry. It's not a time for lament. It's not even a time for longing for God's presence. Jesus is the Son of God come to mankind. It makes perfect sense that Jesus' disciples were not fasting at this time. 
But would they ever fast? Is it just an Old Testament idea that's coming to an end? Because let's face it, it's not a topic that we talk about much, is it? Now you could say, and it's a true statement, the New Testament never commands fasting. True statement. But at the same time, you could also say that both Jesus and throughout the New Testament, it seems to be described fasting as a way as though it is something that is normative to the Christian life. Take, for example, from our own passage that we're looking at today, after he just said, no, they're not going to fast while the bridegroom is with them, it says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. Now, you could say, well, of course they're going to fast. They're, they're mourning, they're grieving when Jesus dies on the cross between that time, but then they'll turn to celebration when he's raised from the dead. But the, if the time not to not fast is when the bridegroom is with you, they said it was perfectly fine while you're awaiting the arrival of the bridegroom. And isn't that where we are now? We are waiting for the return of the bridegroom? the very same language Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the ten virgins, as they were waiting the arrival of the bridegroom, speaking of the return of Christ. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 and 6, he gives some instructions. When you pray, do it like this. When you give, do it like this. When you fast, do it like this. Now, no, one, no one argues whether or not Christians should pray, whether Christians should give, but he says in the same context, when you fast like this. When we get to the book of Acts, part of what we read last week as we sent Samuel out for the work at Flooding Creek, it was during a time when they were gathered together, they were, they were fasting and they were praying, and during that time they were seeking the Lord, and the Lord said, set aside Paul and Barnabas for this ministry. Throughout Christian history, you'll see that there are significant Christians who have practiced the habit of fasting. So it appears, to me at least, that from a biblical perspective, that it seems to be part of the normal Christian life. As I say, it's not commanded. There's no prescription like the, the Pharisees said, where they were like, you must do it Monday, Thursday. It doesn't say how long or what type, but it seems to speak of it as a, this should be a normal part of Christian life. But I think one of the biggest misunderstandings we have, we hear the word fasting, and what's the picture that comes to our head? We picture someone who's, like, starved themselves of absolutely everything and looks so sad and miserable, they've got nothing, no possessions whatsoever, and they just look rotten. We think of it as being something joyless, of a deprived hermit. That's not the way the Bible speaks of it. In the, in the Sermon of the Mount, G Jesus says, don't do it in such a way to get people's attention. Put makeup on your face. Don't make it look like you're all gloomy and sad, like you're malnourished or anything like that. Don't do it for attention. Fasting's not some means of self-denial to win God's favour. You know how some people think, oh, you've got to, got to make yourself suffer somehow to please God. It's nothing like that. It's not a spiritual weight loss plan. In fact, fasting is not centrally about what you give up. 
Because that's the first thought we have, isn't it? When we think fasting, think, what do I give up for how long? Fasting from a biblical perspective is probably about what you get or what you are seeking. It's not about suppressing a desire. That's not the focal point, suppressing a desire for food or whatever it is that you might have chosen to fast for for some period of time. Rather, the focus is on a pursuit of something far more satisfying than that. Fasting is a fulfilling a deep hunger for God. That's how it's been practiced throughout the centuries. It's it's not so much a giving up for the sake of if I go with less that God's somehow going to bless me and do good things for me. It's a case of people choosing to voluntarily say, I'm not going to do this for a little while so that I might seek and hunger after God. says to God, I love you, I depend on you more than I do these things. Now, I don't know about you, but there's lots of things where I think they're part of my day-to-day routine. I, I wouldn't miss them. Often you don't find that out, so you put that to the test. I mean, some of you might be sitting here right now and thinking, oh, I wonder what I'm going to have for lunch. I wonder what I'm going to have for dinner tonight. You think, I don't live so much oriented by these things, but you'd be surprised how subconsciously we just wait for the next thing, the next satisfying thing of that. But if we went through a whole day where we didn't seek after God, we might not notice. Now, fasting doesn't always have to mean like you're giving up a food for some extended period of time or all food. We haven't got time to go into all the ins and outs. It just means giving up of something for the purpose of seeking and hungering after God. As I was thinking about implications for myself throughout this week, what would a day, what would a couple of days look like to say fast and say no, no, no technology? We, we live in an age where we're quite attached to our technology. Maybe spending a couple of days with that, it might find that, oh, reveal I'm a little bit too attached. Well, here's another big one. Imagine a day, a couple of days, without caffeine. Anything, could be anything. But a voluntary giving up, saying, I long for God more than any of these things. Now, don't be silly with it. I'll just say it's a general statement. If you are planning on doing anything with food for more than 24 hours, speak to a doctor before doing so. Anyway, that's, we're not going into all that. So I'll leave it in your conscience and mine as to how, but what it might look like, how frequently it might look like, because the scriptures do not set out a pattern of that, or even if. The Bible doesn't talk about those, but it does give those clear guidelines of what it doesn't look like. It is not to come across to others as being more spiritual. We we go to things, oh, sorry, I'm fasting today. You must think pretty highly of me. I've been doing it for this long. I'm not doing these things. How good and godly am I? It's not about to gain attention. It's not designed to be a means by which you twist God's arm to do something for your benefit. It's a concentrated feeding on him 
because you believe he is supremely more satisfying than anything else. Even Jesus fasted before his temptation in the wilderness. He anticipates his disciples will fast. Fasting as a people longing for Jesus, the bridegroom, to be with him. It's not a religious checkbox as it had become for some of the Pharisees or like, we must do it Monday, we must do it Thursday. There was a second century church document called the Didache, which just means the teaching. And, that, and they said, well, they do, the hypocrites do it on Monday, Thursday, so we're going to do it Wednesday, Friday. I don't think that really captures the heart of it if you make it a religious, it must be on Wednesday, it must be on Friday. Or even to say it must be this number of days of the week or this particular way. I understand they're trying to separate from the other, but I think they just created a a second model of it. But for Jesus' disciples to be not fasting right there in that moment was completely outside of the realm of what the Pharisees thought would or should happen. And Jesus continues to conduct himself in a way outside of their expectations when it comes to the Sabbath. And when it comes to a Sabbath, Jesus and his disciples were plucking heads of grain in order to eat. Eating is a good thing. I eat, you eat. I eat seven days a week, usually. They're not fasting and they're eating publicly. They're showing off. And they're picking grain on the Sabbath. You, know, you think for a moment here, Jesus and his disciples are just trying to trigger the Pharisees. Like, oh, you know how some people just like to just push it just that little bit, knowing that they're really sensitive around that? Well, I don't think Jesus or his disciples are that way inclined. But they ask him when they see these things, why are your disciples doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And it would seem to be saying this, your disciples are picking grains. You're, they're doing that hard work on the Sabbath is it actually unlawful? Not as far as I read the scriptures. Might be outside of the Pharisees' laws. In Deuteronomy 23, it says, If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle or your neighbor's standing grain. Now, that's not specifically in the context of Sabbath, but as a general point, you may pick with your hands someone's grain. That's all good and fine. But the question they're wrestling with is, what constitutes working on the Sabbath to them? Because the Old Testament law spoke about not working on the Sabbath, but it didn't give clear directives about what things counted as that and what did not. And so some of the Jewish leaders who were very particular to make sure they didn't break any of the laws would create all these extra laws around it to make sure they didn't go anywhere near the original one. And in the Mishnah, which I think I referred to a couple of weeks ago, which is a written account of some of these spoken Jewish traditions. Uh, it was put together in the second century but would have reflected some of the things that were present at the time of Jesus. And they have a whole chapter, or not a chapter, a whole book focused on the Sabbath about things you can and can't do. And in chapter 7, verse 2, if you call it verse 2 or point 2, they had 39 things that constituted it as work. Now I'm not going to read the whole 39 of them. But the ones that seem to apply in relation to this conversation going on here, about he who sows, he ploughs, he reaps, binds sheaves, threshes, winnows, selects, 
either you know, makes a difference between the fit and the unfit produce for crops, grinds, sifts, kneads and bakes. And they had thirty big list of 39 things. You couldn't sew two stitches, you couldn't undo two stitches, you couldn't tie a loop, you couldn't tie something up, you couldn't untie something, you couldn't put out a fire. They had some pretty hefty rules. I can't say I've read the entirety of that book in, in the Mishnah, but I'm sure I'd find it quite a cumbersome and I'd probably get quite angry reading it. So from their understanding, or from the rules that they had been taught, they thought, Jesus is disobeying our rules. Now there are a couple of times when Jesus challenges some of their rules. For example, Matthew chapter 12, verse 11. Jesus says, who of you, if you have a sheep, if it falls in the pit on the Sabbath, won't get it out? And they're like, yeah, I kind of would. Or Luke chapter 13, verse 15 says, Who of you having ox wouldn't untie it and lead it over so it can have a drink? And they're like, oh yeah, got me again, Jesus. But here he points to the example of David and his men from 1 Samuel chapter 21 when they went into the house of God and ate the, the, the bread of presence. Now we looked at 1 Samuel last year. And it was true. It was. In terms of, to the letter of the law, it was unlawful. It was dedicated, it was a sign for the use of the priests only. Yet David and his men went and ate this bread. And that idea seemed to be approved both by, by David and Ahimelech, the priest who was there at the time. Now some of you might say, Ahimelech? I've got my Bible in front of me. This is a, in the time of Abiathar. And if those of you who might be familiar with a man named, by the name of Bart Ehrman who was once an evangelical Christian who now is probably one of the greatest opponents of evangelical Christianity. He basically thinks half the Bible's not really what it is. Jesus isn't what he says he is. Apparently this was the verse that led him on that path. Because he reads, it says, In the days of Abiathar, yet he looks in First Samuel chapter 21 and says, Ahimelech was the priest that David and his men went and asked. And he's like, he asked his lecturer where he was studying, what do you do with this? And his lecturer says, have you ever considered maybe the Bible's just got mistakes in it? And that just led him down a trajectory that went continued downhill further and further and further. But Mark doesn't say, while, while Abiathar was the priest that David did this, he says, in the days of but during this time, they didn't have a Bible with little, little markers which said this is where this book of the Bible is in these chapters. But Abiathar was the most significant priest in the book of 1 Samuel. And so he's saying, during those days, if you want to look it up, that's, that's the section of the scrolls around, around the time of Abiathar. That's the place you need to be looking at. Abiathar, incidentally, was the son of Ahimelech. And when... Doug, we called him, the, the Edomite, came and, and killed them all. Uh, Abiathar was the son who survived. So that's not the contradiction that poor old Bart thought it needed to be. But the setting was this. David and his men, David was the Lord's anointed, was on the run from King Saul who was trying to take his life and he had no food and he thought his best option was to go to the house of the Lord and ask if they could have some of the bread. And both David and the priest 
thought this was a good, gracious thing to do. The occasion for David and his men to receive bread was an example of mercy, not rigid, unloving religion. I think Jesus is implying the same here, even though what they did may not, according to the scriptures, actually be unlawful. Where's the place of mercy and grace, just like it was afforded to David? So the Lord says in Hosea, I desire steadfast love, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. We regularly say this, I don't desire in your offerings, I desire mercy and love. But in the process, Jesus is telling these people who have got a particular interpretation of the law, he says, you know what? I have the authority to interpret the law. I am the Lord of the Sabbath, he says. The Sabbath wasn't made for... Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. The Sabbath wasn't made to make, make it difficult for people, but what they couldn't do, all the big list of things you can't do, about the benefits, the rest, the blessing of God. Now, if you thought that went down like a lead balloon, it seems to be on that exact same Sabbath, Jesus goes into the, into the synagogue with these same people. You think, wow, this is going to be a great church service. Imagine that, you just had a big Barney about Sabbath stuff, then you all come together in a church building together. And according to chapter 3, verse 1, there's a man there who's got a withered hand. It's not an emergency. It's not something that must be addressed on that particular day. But it says, and they watched Jesus to see what he'd do in order that they might accuse him. Unfortunately, I've known people like that. People who kind of seem to like to watch people hoping and waiting for them to do something wrong so they can say something bad about them. And if you have even the minest inclination that way, I encourage you to stop. Jesus, who was aware of the hardness of their hearts, asked them a question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And guess what? They were silent. What do you do when you get given those options? He's done something that's totally against what you believe, the rules you've made. But when you put it plainly, well, on the Sabbath, should we do good things or bad things? What do you reckon? Now, we know what their answer was in their head. They didn't want to articulate it because that goes against what they were hoping to get across. They were so set on enforcing little minute details that they missed the overall heart and intent of the law that was given to them. There was no room for compassion whatsoever. Now, Some have said when you've got yourself so set on getting the small things right, what you often do is end up with a small heart. Do not be a people who are known for your insistence on others to conform to rules which have been made up outside of the scriptures. Don't be the sort of person who's known to be harsh and unloving because someone has a different 
point of view on something which you just have a conviction to which the scriptures are not entirely clear. We're not talking about going wishy-washy about what God says to be true. That's a non-negotiable. If God says it, it stands. It's not up for debate. I'm talking about the rules that we make ourselves around God truths and then start to enforce those upon others. Let me give you an example. Because there's nothing wrong with making rules that might help you to keep other parts of the scriptures. For example, if you were someone who struggled with alcohol, for you to say, my rule for myself is I'm never going to touch alcohol or I'm never going to go to a place where there is alcohol, that might be good for you. But if you then turn around to everyone around you and say, if you're a Christian, you can't go anywhere near alcohol, then you've gone way beyond what the scripture says. Or maybe you might go around the topic of, of schooling. You might become convinced that the best way to raise your children to the way of the Lord is homeschooling and anything else is no go. Well, Scripture doesn't kind of make those distinctions. That might be, and that might be good for you and your family, but to say that everyone else who doesn't follow it that way or the other way around, like the other person might say, well, well I've got these disciples I'm raising up and sending them out into the mission field. You, you don't want to insist upon others conforming to your convictions. That's called legalism. When Jesus healed the man with a withered hand, that was just too much. The Pharisees then are seeking to kill Jesus. We're in chapter 2. No, chapter 3 this happens. Of a 16-chapter book. And they're already plotting to have Jesus killed. Sabbath was supposed to be a day of rest. Yet at this point in time, it was a day when people were stressing and worrying over all these little things that I can't do and keeping an eye on, oh, don't you do that, don't you do that. Jesus even was the fulfilment of the Sabbath rest. He was the one who came to give rest. Yet he was opposed by the Pharisees. In other words, they're saying, this Jesus doesn't fit in the way we do things here. Therefore, they say, he's got to go. Now, I've heard it said that it's one of the last words of a dying church. We've never done it like that before. We ain't changing the way we do anything, even if it's a good idea, even if it's biblical. We're not going to do it because we've never done it like that before. This is how we do it. Anything else must be an abomination because otherwise we would have done it beforehand. When Jesus came on the scene, that's probably exactly what the, the Pharisees thought. They see him saying and doing all these things like, we've never done it like that before, therefore, chuck it out. But when Jesus comes onto the scene, it would make no sense for everything just to continue the way that it was. Now, the entirety of human history, the entirety of the Bible's message centres around the arrival of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who would die on the cross to bring an end to the problem of sin and raise again in victory. It's not same old, same old. This is the same Jesus who proclaimed, I am making all things near. And he illustrates the point in chapter 2, verses 21 to 22, for those worried that I'd skipped over it. He says, no one 
sews a piece of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But the new wine is for fresh wine skins. Like Jesus trying to make the point, he says, there's two things that nobody does. Nobody puts a new piece of cloth onto a previously worn, pre-shrunk garment. You put it on, you wash it, it's going to start shrinking, it's actually going to make your original hole worse than it was beforehand. What he's saying to them is, yes, things are different. You can't just whack Jesus on top of what you're already doing. He's not just like a patch on, on your customs and rules you've already created. Makes the same point with the wineskins, which are usually made out of animal parts where they would ferment the wine within it and during the fermentation process, gases are released, it would stretch, then they'd empty it all out, they would dry out and so it's stretched, it's larger in size, as it dries out it becomes brittle and if you were to put some more in there again, ferment again, it's going to try and stretch again while it's dry and brittle and eventually it's going to explode. It's going to ruin both the wine skin and the wine. Even today's modern fermentation vessels, they're made of stainless steel, but they've got a way to get the gases out of them because they're going to go boom if you don't. In both illustrations, Jesus is making a point about what happens when you try to mix the old and the new. Have a bit of a foot, of camp, foot in both camps. The point he's not making, he doesn't say, well, it's better to have a, your foot in both camps than to just be in the old camp. He says any attempt to fit Jesus into your old ways is actually worse off. If you're investigating Jesus, you're here to find out what he's all about. Jesus is not an add-on to improve what you've already got. He has come to make you a new creation. If you're already in Christ and you are a new creation, the old has passed, the new has come. And an image that I think communicates it so clearly and I like it, the idea of being a Christian, trying to have a foot in both camps is like trying to ride two horses at the same time. Eventually, it'll tear you apart. If we long to draw near to Jesus, then we should happily let go of the old in order that we might have more of the new, more of what we have been blessed with in Christ. I wonder if my and ours probably, presumably, reluctance toward the concept of fasting is that we don't long for him more. That we might be a little bit too attached to the same old, same old. And it's certainly something that I've been challenged as I was thinking about that through this week, was when was the last time I did anything like this? It's been a while. Not because my convictions changed, but maybe they had if it wasn't expressing itself in any way. Soon we're about to come around the Lord's table, a time when we, we feast on Jesus, so to speak. When we feast on what he has done for us in the past through his death and resurrection on behalf of sinners. But as we fast, we're feasting on him looking forward to the return, being in his presence forevermore.
wanting to know him more and more. But also, too, as we think ahead, is it possible that I could be applying some of the rules that I've made on others and hindering them to coming to Jesus? Is there a place for hungering for God? Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We don't want to be a people who just like God, but who are hungry and thirsty for him and seek him as precious above all else. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Lord, I know in my tiredness I don't feel like I communicated well this morning. But I do uh, believe that the effectiveness of what you do with it is not the messenger itself. Lord, help us to hear what we need to hear. If I said anything carelessly, help us to easily just lay aside those things. But Lord, we want to be a people who hunger after you, who are not just familiar with or even see you as a valuable add-on to what we already have. You are our life. In you we live and move and have our being. And by whatever means you need to do, draw us nearer to you that you might truly be our life in every single way. Ask in Jesus' name. Amen.